Welcome to the Manufacturing Come Up. I'm Malachi Greb, your host. And today we have an awesome guest, Vlad Ramanavo. I probably didn't pronounce it right again for like the 10th time that we tried to get this right. But Vlad uh, has one of the best educational courses uh, for like PLC platforms. And I think they're even navigating the robotic side of things as well. So welcome to the show, Vlad. Thank you for having me, Malachi. Really appreciate it. No problem. We're glad to have you. How are you doing today? How's, uh, how's everything going on I'm your side? Things are well. Things are well. Busy. How about you? Uh, busy as well. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Solus BLC has been growing. We're slowly expanding. We are, uh, we've brought in a robotics experts who are looking to sort of create more nice. content on that side. I know that there's been a lot of um, growth in that industry, right? As you probably know very well, in 2022, I think we had the record yeah. purchase of robotics in automation. And so there's certainly yep. a demand, uh, both from an automation standpoint, from a technical standpoint, but also from a, a training standpoint. I think manufacturers are trying to uh, bring up their maintenance staff primarily to be able to, at the very least, service uh, you know what's been put in place by integrators. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I couldn't I couldn't uh, make the commitment to help you out with the robotic side. Uh, it's very difficult, right? Like, I, I think there's so much work uh, to be deploying these systems, to be commissioning them, to be designing like robotic cells, palletizing, yeah. uh, case packing, you name it, right? So I, I'm certainly, how to say it, not, we're also struggling to find uh, people to cover that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I think people on the back end, they don't know how much like energy and, and whatnot goes into to make in some of these technical videos, like a sit down and giving people information video is, is fairly quick to sit down. Like perfect examples, like your podcast versus like one of your PLC training uh, videos. Like the difference is, is like maybe there's an extra 15 minutes on the podcast or something on the, on the PLC training video. It might be a 15 minute video that took two to six hours to get prepared. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I'm always very open in having conversations. I know that there's a lot of people in our industry that are starting to create more content. And I'm more than happy to share like the full stack and, and things that I do at the very least to get through that process, because I know that there is a learning curve. And as you said, it takes sometimes six hours, sometimes like a full day, right? Because I also need to, um, how to say it, I don't know everything at the top of my head. So I need to yeah. go back and dig in and like understand and then create a project and then film that and edit the video. So it takes quite a bit of effort. But anyways, I, I know that there's people trying to do similar like content and I'm always more than happy to share uh, what my yeah. process is at least. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said too, like anybody who's out here with expert level skills, um, I think it'd be good also to reach out to Vlad and, and maybe, maybe it makes sense that he can put, he can have you as an instructor on one of his courses. Absolutely. And, and as I told you, it's very hard to find people nowadays just because of how much work there is in yeah. automation and robotics. So obviously, you know, a lot of us engineers want to tinker with things. So you want, you want someone that has an interest in the technology, but also wants to do like some of the video editing, the, like the video shoot. So that takes, I feel like a different skill set slightly. So finding the pair of the two yeah. in a market that's paying a premium is very <laughs> difficult. So yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Vlad, so you also have a, a very good set of credentials on the academic side of things. Uh, why don't you kind of take us back to where, where this all got started? 
Yeah, so maybe to give you a background, um, you know, of my like upbringing, at least very quickly. So my sure. family has always been with the had the view, at least that you need to get a degree in order to be successful in life. Right. And even to some extent now, uh, my family is still pushing me to get that PhD level. You know, they want me to be very like educated from the the yeah. general standpoint. Right. Uh, so anyway, so I picked engineering as the bachelor's uh, of choice, and I finished that back in 2013 at, at uh, Concordia in uh, Montreal, Canada, and had the opportunity to move to the U.S. So the degree itself, I'll be very honest with you, didn't teach me anything about manufacturing, right? So I've <laughs> certainly got the knowledge of like circuits, electronics, uh, signals, you know, we did a lot of math as you would expect in a, in a typical engineering degree, but very little on the practical side. So if I was maybe to, in retrospect, think back and see like what I would do differently is I think that I didn't know what all the options were, right? So I think that in, um, in high school and in college, so here you have two years in college, it's the, it's like the European system in, in, uh, in Canada. So you have a two year of college where you do sort of like your very basic like calculus, linear algebra to prep you for engineering school. And then you go and get four years of engineering. So oh, wow. my point is they <laughs> didn't present us with all the options, right? Like it was more like that's the path to university. That's kind of where you're aligned to go. And obviously they talked about like mechanical engineering, like process engineering, electrical engineering, but there was no like trades. They didn't necessarily have those maybe like workshops. And I think sure. if I would have had that information at the time, I would have chosen a different path. Also, too, a lot of those, a lot of the trade things, like if you're wanting to go for like an engineering degree, it's still very, very limited on on like any trade uh, job. Let's go PLC or robot programmer, right? The amount of schools that offer an engineering level degree in PLC or robot programming is very, very limited. Sure. And, and I guess like now I know that there were options, right? Like I know that there's like trade schools that offer like PLC programming and, and it it brings you through like different steps, right? Like you understand how to wire things, you understand how to work with like VFDs, uh, you understand like relay logic and I guess hardware as well. Whereas I had pretty much like none of that in, yeah. uh, in engineering, right? A lot of it was very like textbook based. And look, I'll, I'll be honest with you, like I can draw some parallels in the field that maybe some people who didn't do the math aspect, like they don't have that. But I yeah. think it's a very small portion and in very like specific scenarios, right? Like I'll give you one example. Um, I had to scope out, I remember a signal that was coming in from a sensor because it was too fast for the PLC to pick up. And this this happened like twice in you know a decade worth of manufacturing and since I had used an oscilloscope in electronics in university, then I was the only one who was like, oh yeah, like we can use an oscilloscope and this is the, you know, the <laughs> signal and we can see it. But outside of that, like I didn't know what a PLC was when I got my first like manufacturing job, right? I've never right. seen a PLC. It was never mentioned to me. So you take it for what it is. Uh, and then I guess like to finalize, uh, so I got my engineering degree, worked in the field from 2014, 2013 up until 2019 decided to pursue of um, decided to pursue an MBA and there so I had this how to say like while I was working at several companies so Procter and Gamble Kraft Heinz the frustration that I personally had is I didn't really understand the why right like I 
I understood that we were deploying this technology. We were trying to improve the capacity of the plant, but I didn't necessarily understand the business decisions uh, that were yeah. made, right? Like, so we would run like a different product and I'd be like, well, like, why are we running this product? Or like, why are we trying to increase capacity? Who's, who's selling the product that's coming out of this plant, right? And, yeah. and maybe it was just me. And, you know, I, I got really curious about the business aspects. Um, and to be honest with you, I thought I was going to get all the answers at the MBA. And I got more questions after the MBA. <laughs> so it's it, it certainly gave you, it, it gave me knowledge and kind of rounded me a little bit more on like the accounting sides and like the marketing sides and gave me some tools. But I don't think it, how to say it, like the thoughts that I had going into an MBA were different than mm -hmm. when I got out. Yeah, absolutely. And like one thing with like your particular path and journey, like, the credentials are, are, are very nice. And like certain individuals are like driven for the credentials. Like, even though like I didn't go very far along in my, uh, you know, curriculum or whatever in my academia, um, I was still very focused on like credentials, credentials, credentials. Right. So like, even though I, so I, you know, I graduated from like a community college with associate degrees. Uh, but so like, it was like, for me, I was like, what, what can I stack? Right. So I was like, I got two associate degrees. I got mechanical and electrical engineering concentrations. I did, you know, uh, welding concentration. I did, uh, any, any of the like training things that I could take. Like I was taking, like I took, they got like one of Siemens certifications. I got, uh, the FANUC certifications, Jaskawa, right. It's like all those things. Like I was, ch I was chasing and, uh, for like the academia side of things, right? Like I, even though I didn't take this road of going down, uh, a, 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 I guess a traditional college path, like it was one thing that, that drove me to like have all these things kind of collected, all these certifications and, and degrees collected, like for my own self-confidence to really be competitive in the market, right? I was like, okay, if I have an associate's degree, what's going to make me more competitive? Give me two mm -hmm. associate's degree. Give me, give me a mechanical yep. concentration. Give me an electrical concentration. And I would comment, you know, like uh, Malachi on that side, I think the certifications are a lot better in terms of content, at least in my opinion, than degrees, right? So mm -hmm. the reason why I say that is because typically a certificate is going to be updated fairly often, right? Like every couple of years at the very least, it's going to be very specific towards a, uh, a product, like whether it is hardware or software, and yeah. it will be very focused on that area, right? Like versus a degree, yep. again, like I told you, we would do like general electronics or general like signals and systems, but it was not very applicable for a specific device, right? So that's why right. even when people ask me like, hey, um, you know, maybe I'm looking to do a degree or I'm looking to do a certification. I think you can go a lot further in terms of like very applicable knowledge with the certifications that I'm seeing. Uh, from many of these areas. So that, again, that's just my opinion. Obviously, yeah. you have to make your own choices. There's also, you know, to that same counter argument is a lot of companies still gatekeep certain positions. Uh, and I, I mean, you can probably find the names of the companies I'm talking about, but you would apply to the engineering position and they would be, well, do you have an accredited engineering degree from like this school? And if you yep. say like, no, they're, they're not going to even look at your resume, right? Like, and yep. I think that's unfortunate, but that's just the reality of. Uh, yeah. Of yeah. That's like, that's one of the key things I advise. And like, whenever I was saying about the, uh, you know, not like not technically having an engineering degree, like 
people have to keep that in mind. Like if you want to do like robotics and PLCs, like you might have to take some of those classes like as electives, like if you want the highest level position, because you really may need that engineering degree to like get in the doors of certain companies because of that gatekeeper. Which is, like I said, it's a little bit unfortunate, right? Because through yeah. my experience, I've seen like an operator who'd be a much better programmer just because, you know, they're excited about the technology. They've already worked with the technology and they're looking to kind of grow in that area and could be sent to, you know, a mm. couple of weeks worth of like robotics or PLC training. And they would yep. be miles ahead than an engineer coming in fresh out of university. But again, that's a that's a whole other like tangent. That's just my opinion. So I, I think... Yeah. The industry is a bit skewed, but anyways. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And also I want to add a point too on the uh, on the certification side of things. Whenever it comes to like practical skill sets that you're better off, you're better off taking uh, these different certification classes, especially if you're going to be working with that particular product, right? If you're going into a facility and you know they have Allen Bradley PLCs and FANIF robots, like if you just go and take their their, you know, all the FANIC courses you can take, all the Allen Bradley courses you can take, you're going to be even much stronger doing that than you would if you went and spent two years in college with yep, the same amount of time agree. spent. And probably money too. I mean, even though like you look at like a week, uh, let's say like a week of, of FANIC training, like $2,000 or something, right? Um, okay, that's $2,000 for one week. But if you if you break that, if they if you break that down to look more like, uh, a college class, I mean, what would that be? That'd be almost like a, a half a semester of schooling. True. Right? Yeah. And I, I mean, look, look, to your point, I, I think education is also what you make of it to some degree, right? You have to also weigh in. Maybe if you sign up to that founder course at your local college, right? Like you can, you can just cruise by and get the credential or you could actually learn quite a bit even outside of the class, right? I'm assuming you can go mm -hmm. to the lab and sort of practice things and you can learn a lot more in that span of a semester, let's say, than you would uh, otherwise, right? And so you also need to, how to say, like figure out what's right for you because I think a lot of even on the engineering side, right? What I've seen in the bachelor's level is people just kind of get the degree, right? Like they get the check mark, but they've not really applied themselves. So they come out without any, I want to say, not deep knowledge, but you know what I mean? Like they don't yeah. come out with knowledge. So the same could be said about any kind of the straining. And I think when you go to a week to FANUC, it obviously is easier because I think you're with the people that are learning FANUC. Everyone's like very passionate about it. You know, if you make that commitment, yeah. then usually you want to learn versus I, I didn't feel the same way at the bachelor's level, at least in uh, in the education yeah. system. Yeah, absolutely. Some people don't even know exactly what they want to do. So like it's hard for them to be like, oh, this is very important. Exactly. Exactly. I think that 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 is super super important because you know I actually took a couple years off before I actually went to college. Uh, I actually went to college and then dropped out the first time. I was going to be an electrical okay. lineman. Actually, I did one semester and I was like, okay, this is you know not the direction I want to go. Um, and so when I went back to college, right, I went. I'm I'm a couple years in the real world as an adult. And I'm like, Hmm, I'm in class. I'm with these young, these young 18 year old kids that just graduated six months ago from high school, you know, and they're all playing around thinking things are funny. And 
And I remember like my level of seriousness versus like their level of seriousness. And like, there was occasions where like the, the kids would be like too much. And I'm like, guys, you might want to pay attention to this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause yep. <laughs> I went through those processes of having the real life experience and knowing the importance of it. So therefore like me being at school, my alertness and my attention towards like what we were actually learning was much more valuable to me. And, and therefore I had that focus. I, I think like, look, I 100% agree with your statement. I think you need to maybe get that. Um, I want to say like slap from life to kind of like put you back into high gear, because I think, you know, when it, and I saw the exact same thing at the bachelor's level in engineering, right? Like it's your first degree. You're still probably living with your parents. You're figuring things out in life. You don't really like, you know, when you say you don't know what you, what you're doing in life, that's all great, but you have to make a living, right? Like at some point you have to really make yep. a career choice, a decision. And once you go out in real in the real world, you see that things are not as, stru as structured as school, right? Like no one's going to tell you, here's your assignment, do this, do this, do this. And, you know, you move on to the next one. It's a lot more up to you to sort of get those opportunities and figure out like what's important. And you can always, how to say it, make maybe the wrong decision and, again just waste that time but if you yeah. understand what you're putting in the time for mm -hmm. you're focused and i would say like the same thing happened to me at the master's level right like so when i did the mba i was paying everything out of my pocket so i understood the value of money i was there for a very specific purpose everyone there was a very for a very specific purpose so everyone was paying attention because again it's your time it's your money and it's what can you do with it after right so whatever you miss uh, you, you, it's just a lost opportunity at that point. Are you are you still anticipating going after your PhD? I doubt it. I really doubt it. I like you know like my viewpoint of education like changed a lot. I think, and I'll, I'll give you one example. So I always point to people who want to learn to program. There's a class by Harvard University released for free, uh, CS50. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's for free on YouTube. It's for free like on the Harvard website. I can tell you that that programming class is like a hundred X better than any class that I've gotten in my university. And it's absolutely for free. Right. And yeah. so barring the degree, requ the degree requirements of some companies, I think you can get an excellent education from a knowledge standpoint from online resources. Right. And once yeah. you get through that certifications, uh, like various credentials that are needed for you are going to be, I, I think much better than like a PhD, unless, you know, if yeah. your goal is to become a professor, uh, more power to you. Yeah. It's one thing that kind of puts us in a weird position, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for individuals, like say, for instance, like if, if somebody wants the academia side of things, like why well, everybody would probably love to just have a PhD, right? Like I would love to have a PhD, but like the only reason at this point I would even want something like a PhD or, or an MBA is, is the credibility of just having it right? Like that it's just, it's more of a status thing. Right. And sure. that that's where like part of the challenge is now is like, and you said your, your, your perspective on, on schooling's changed that realistically, like there's enough, not there's enough content out there. There's enough content that's affordable or like you said, for free that if people just put the initiative towards uh, learning something, let's go with PLCs, right? Like if they're going to learn to program PLCs, then 
they literally just spend their time. They don't even have to spend money. Just spend your time and take it serious like a college education, like a college course, and really study. Really, you know, maybe maybe invest in a PLC. Maybe invest in in some paid courses. Um, sure. Well, I think it's also like you you also have uh, free YouTube videos. You have your you have your uh, you know paid courses and stuff like that, and. Uh, those things are so powerful and can get people up to speed to where, where they need to be. And, and the industry has such a huge gap that for like PLC and robot programmers, the degree is not as much of a threshold unless you just want to get uh, into a particular facility. Right. And, and you go ahead. Uh, I was going to make the comment. I, I think, you know, to our industries, how to say like discredit, or I guess like the unfortunate reality is that, it's hard to practice with some of the software and hardware uh, that you don't get access to, right? And I think mm. that's one of the reasons, like I really like what inductive automation has done with their, um, you know, SCADA platform is that it's it's free every two hours, you just need to reset it, but you get access to all the features, right? And so yeah. I'm certainly not as familiar with the robotic side of things, but I can tell you on the PLC side, it's difficult to get access to those tools. And so if you're a student just trying to get your hands on uh, learning, let's say like yeah. Alan Bradley, Siemens or any other platform, it becomes difficult, right? And mm -hmm. I wish that we provided better, how to say like accessibility, I guess, to yeah. those who want to learn. I know, I, I think Siemens has now like a 30 day trial for their like software. But I think, again, there should be like a student version that you can just... Uh, easily deploy and you can pass on the cost to the hardware and anyways i think there's different business models that i think are could be more suitable to make it a yeah. better learning experience yeah and i think that like maybe a good message to companies like alan bradley who are who are as big as they are like what i highly predict happening is somebody's going to open up the proper amount of accessibility and the proper amount of marketing and sells resources towards something and they're going to end up dominating the market. Right. You know, yes. in my opinion, like you look at Alan Bradley as being like the, one of the Goliaths of, of controls in the United States. In my opinion, they have two big things for them. Their product works well and everybody knows it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's like the two big things outside of that. It's like, is it super intuitive? Is it, you know what I mean? Is your training accessible? There's like a lot of things in my opinion that are, that are lacking from it. Uh, they have good product line, but you know, if, if a lot of these other things are missing, then the new people coming into the industry may not care. The guy who starts a company today, a manufacturing company today may not necessarily, necessarily care that everybody else uses Allen Bradley PLCs. You might say, well, cool, that's what they're doing, but they're charging 3000 for their PLC. This one's charging 1000 has free software and, and free training or something like that, right? Like, Yeah, and absolutely. And it's a, it's like a, well, like I guess it's, it's a chicken or the egg problem, right? It's, <laughs> uh, you want these little guys, uh, you know, like Phoenix Contact, Opto22, Omron. There, there's a lot of players, I think, that are gaining traction in that arena, but it mm -hmm. becomes this challenge where, okay, they're not the biggest yet so i'm going to learn the biggest one yeah. but i would really like i would really like to learn on the other platform because it is free it is easy to access i can buy a controller and so it's one of those things like it needs to be adopted to be learned but then you're also having to learn the main platform that's in the field you know so it becomes this yeah. 
kind of a weird lockdown that is unfortunate again because I can tell you when I was a student I could certainly not afford you know the wall that you see behind me there was zero chance yeah. that I that I was able to uh, to pay for that so it's um, it's just the unfortunate I guess reality I, I think it will slowly change but I think it will take time and this is definitely kind of like a little bit of transition in topic but I think that potentially investing in hardware and software may be a good option for people. I mean, it, it is unfortunate that maybe you have to pay for it, but, you know, having, having an Allen Bradley PLC and having uh, the Allen Bradley software, I mean, you're looking at what you can accomplish, maybe $4,000. You can get a, a year, a year subscription of the software and get a PLC for, for roughly $4,000. Um, it's an investment, but so is going to college and, and, and learning in those ways. Uh, like RoboGuide, uh, I think there's like two or 3,000 for an annual subscription. And like it, it's like 10,000 if you just want to buy like a one-time license. But um, especially like for like on the robotic side of things, that's really nice is that you get a 3D world with it. And so you can, those platforms, you can learn a lot because you can physically see what's going on. You can go find 3D models of conveyors on the internet and download them and upload them into RoboGuide and, and play around with like the different uh, software tools and, and playing around with it. You know, it, it is the exact user interface of the Fanuc robot. So uh, you're getting like, the essentially, I'm not going to say real-world experience, but you're getting direct exposure to the platform itself. And, you know, maybe even paying for that software might be even more cost-effective than going and taking, like, a, a FANUC uh, training course. Because let's say, for instance, you go take a FANUC training course, one $2,000, $3,000. For a training course that's one week, whenever you could, like, potentially buy the software... And you're going to do a lot of hard learning. You're going to watch a lot of YouTube videos and you're going to say, okay, ah, okay. And click some buttons, do this, do that. Why didn't that, you know what I mean? But, but now you have infinite amount of time, well, one year, right? If you just buy like a one year subscription, you have one year of time that you can like dedicate as much potential time that you can and energy that you can put into this uh, to understanding its user interface and, and understanding how to program and if you really look at like the amount of time that you spend inside of a college class, the person with the proper amount of dedication can learn in three months what somebody with a two-year degree learned. If they just have like the software and they're just just constantly working day and night. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And you're also cutting out some of the, I want to say, quote unquote, unnecessary materials that you're also thought outside of that core platform, right? Because at the end of the day, when you uh, get let's say a job in robotics or PLC programming. You want to have a very focused like skill set, right? You don't need, mm -hmm. you know, I we were programming like embedded systems. We were programming FPGAs, programming in assembly. I've not used any of that stuff since you know 2013. Right. But to your point, I, I think as um, as you gain experience in the field, as you maybe like mature, also you realize that time is very valuable, right? So right now. If I was to go and I'm just giving a hypothetical example and want to learn guitar, there's zero chance that I'm going to just not buy a guitar and try to watch videos and try to understand <laughs> that, right? Like I would invest in a guitar. I would invest in someone who plays guitar and I would invest in lessons with that person to get quicker to where I would like to go, right? Sa same could be said about sports, right? Like if I want to learn how to play tennis or golf, 
Mm. I would pay for those. Like I'm willing to pay so that my learning curve is shortened. Right. And I'm a little bit biased, right. Cause we provide education on like PLCs and, Mm. um, and, and several platforms, but I really think that even personally, I'm realizing that I want to pay for someone who's already done oh, the, yeah. the work or the job so that I could do it quicker. 101%, 101%, like pay, like investing in, in your education. Like people say this, you hear it a lot, invest in your education, invest in your education. And it, it's one of the most powerful things you can do. Like people who operate at the highest levels of success, like CEOs and stuff like that, like business owners, I mean, it's not far-fetched to spend 10, 20, $30,000 on like a week-long seminar or, or a direct one-on-one training with some type of consultant. Like yep. these are not far-fetched things. And it's, it's solely for the reason of uh, the speed of at, the, at which you can educate yourself. And it comes in all flavors, right? Like it's in business, it could be in marketing and sales, like whatever, whatever the skill you might need, I think, I, I guess like I've come to the conclusion, I want to spend money, talk to the right people, get the right tools, because even on the tool side, right, like you mentioned RoboGuide that you can learn and simulate very well with, and you could be watching, you know, a hundred videos on how someone's doing something in RoboGuide, but that's going to cut down to, let's say like 10 hours. And I'm just throwing out like random numbers yeah, out yeah, there, yeah. but ultimately you can very quickly, I think, gain that skill, but just having invested. So what's the value of your time, you know, that it took to learn something in a very, how to say like different way. But I think, you know, when you're young, you're hoping to, and again, you don't have the, maybe the funds for that or your yeah. company's not paying for it. So it becomes difficult to sometimes justify mm-hmm. that. Um, but yeah. it's just, the, I want to say the reality of, uh, of things, but yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. And, and also to add to that, like, the phase at which you are in your life, right? Like if you're, if you're at the very beginning, like maybe just haven't even went to college yet, or you're in college, like essentially, I don't want to say like your time is less valuable, but in this standpoint, like your time is less valuable, right? You're as of right now, you, you spend less money, spend less money, spend more time. And then as you like increase in your career and everything that you're doing, you want to do the opposite, right? You want to spend less time and spend more money. To, to accomplish those educational things. If I can ask you one question, Malika, you know, I'm curious of the sure. state of robotics 2023. Are you seeing customers automating just as much? Are you seeing a reduction in purchases? Like how is the, how is the industry doing? You know, there's again, conversations of recessions. I know we've redefined what a recession yeah. is, but that's a whole other conversation topic. Like what are you seeing in the robotics industry in 2023? You know, I think that, the recession is is just like a fallacy. I think people are out here talking about a recession, but I think in the real world, I'm not. I'm personally not seeing any signs of recession. The only version of, that I see of a recession is people cannot get employees. Like that's the version of, of a recession. And and you know, there's some economical things with that. Like you know, now we're having to pay higher salaries for maybe lower skilled jobs like McDonald's, which might cause disruption and stuff like that. But that's like a whole nother thing. Like as of right now, like I would say we're in the past. Like I, like we had seen a lot more of, we want to, we want to install this in, or we want to install this in, in July, or we want to install this in, in a December shutdown. And, you know, we want to kick off the project maybe in July. Now it's more of a conversation of, as soon as we get approval, we want to kick this thing off and we want you to install this as quickly as you can. And let's map out some time where, where we can, you know, make this install happen. Right. And whereas like before it was like, 
I've seen a lot more of like, let's wait for the summer shutdown. Let's wait for the Christmas shutdown for installation to now it's like, let's, let's, and all, and also too, the issuing of POs was kind of in alignment with that more so. So like if you, if you had a project that was going to be a six month long project, you know, they were talking about installing in December. So they're issuing a PO in July. And now it's more of a, we want to issue a PO today and then just get this thing installed as soon as your lead times will allow for it. <laughs> right. And do you see that across the board? Do you see, you know, a lack of like operators, machinists, uh, electricians, techs, engineers, managers? Like, do you see it across the board? Do you see like certain maybe careers or or people in demand a bit more in the manufacturing space? It's definitely everywhere, but you do see it much more on like the production operator side of things. It's manufacturers really struggling to get their product out the door, which for the most part relies on, uh, you know, the operator. I mean, then you have like CNC companies too, though, that are, you know, struggling to get, you know, younger people in and people with skill, you know, who are skilled. And that I think that we're experiencing two different things, right? There's, there's the aftermath of, of COVID Mm -hmm. that changed working culture, I believe, where now people have like took that time off and like, I don't need to go back to work or, or maybe it was a, you know, a husband and wife situation. Maybe they were both working and they both weren't working. And then they said, well, you know what, why don't you just go back to work? I'll stay at home and do things. Uh, Like that's, that's just one scenario, but I think there's a lot more of those things going on that definitely change, like why we're seeing a shortage in workers, right? Like people are, are just not going to go back to work for like those production type of jobs. And then the other, the other situation is more of that, you know, the, the older generation retiring and there's just not people to fill those positions on some of the more skilled trade uh, items. It's, and it's an interesting dilemma. You know, I've been trying to, how to say like get answers. Obviously I don't have the answer to what uh, is going to need to happen to change this. I think that salaries increasing will certainly help, uh, but I still feel that there's going to be a lack of people, again, for one reason or another, going into manufacturing. Like, right, as as unfortunate as it is, I think all automation will need to pick up because I think in other countries, right, if you look at uh, like China and Taiwan, things are a lot more automated uh, than here in the U.S. And we're slowly now catching up, and I think uh, it's going to help with those. Uh, employee shortages. But uh, yeah, I I don't know. I I don't know what the answer is because I think it's also going to require a different skill set in the workforce, right? As we put out automation on the plant floors, but it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of to dive in a little bit to like the financial side of like the economy and whatnot. The thing that I see that's kind of scary is the fact that like, if you put a McDonald's wage at, at, $18 an hour. And then you want to hire somebody to be like an intro, like brand new, fresher, uh, CNC operator, right? You know, at one point in time, you could hire that person to $8 an hour, $12 an hour. And he maybe starting off by kind of sweeping the floors at first, or he's starting off by, you know, maybe he works at, maybe he's still in high school or, or maybe he's in college and they're gaining that, that, that real world experience. That business is getting the benefit of having, uh, you know, a more f- affordable laborer and uh, it's like a win-win situation, right? And now it becomes challenging because unless you have like somebody who has the initiative, you could essentially go work at McDonald's and make more money than if you went and worked for, yeah. you know, 
a, a, a CNC machine shop, which. Yeah. And I was going to say, like, I don't think we always articulate how to say it, like the benefits of learning CNC machining and what it's going to help you do, let's say in five years. So people obviously, and again, I, I can't blame the people. I usually blame how to say like the environment. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? But we don't, we don't sell, I think the manufacturing industry well enough. And by we, I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the producers and the integrators and what have you, yeah. but ultimately the person just chooses, well, what's the easier job, right? Like they're not thinking like, well, this job is going to allow me to grow so much further in five years and yeah. have a very, you know, like stable environment. It's going to be mm -hmm. great. A lot of opportunities versus like, Hey, I'm just going to do something much easier. And I'm not saying, you know, McDonald's is, is much easier, but I'm saying maybe from like a, a demand standpoint, yeah. uh, it's kind of, uh, the choice that they make. But anyways, it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious to see how it's going to go. Yeah. And also too, like, you know, we talked about this a little bit off camera, but you know, I, I have a cousin and a brother who are, not really interested in, in, in robotics, right? And, you know, what I want to get at there is like, you know, for me, I'm really trying to push to them like, hey, like, do you want to make 30 plus dollars an hour in your in your career? Here's a clear defined path where you can do it dot, 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 and you'll make 30 plus dollars an hour. And, um, you know, there's like a hesitancy there. And I, I think some of it's generational, you know, and I think some of it too is just like, you just don't at, at the younger age you don't um, see the importance of like choosing a path, go down that path, and and then decide later what you want to do. Right? Like, mm -hmm. I would highly suggest if somebody doesn't know what they're doing, like I'll use our industry for an example because you can get out of college and make good money, right? People are coming out of uh, community colleges with a two-year degree, making like twenty-six plus an hour doing like PLC, robot programming, mechanical engineering. Um, and, and so, you know, those type of positions or, or what, going back a little bit, going through that process of, of education, two years of time, which is a very small amount of time. By the time somebody's 20 years old, they can have the ability to make $26 an hour for the rest of their life. Yep. Do that. When you get out of college, if you don't want to do it at all, don't do it, whatever. It's only two years. But you, but if you spend four years not knowing what you're doing, and then then you decide you're going to do something, and then you do something, and, and, and let's say, for instance, like, you know, this is something my mom did personally. She went and she got a – she went to, like, beautician school, right? She gets out of beautician school, takes whatever it was, one, two years for that, and gets out making $14 an hour. And, uh, if people don't think about that, like what is the outcome of, of like this training and whatnot that I'm going to do, mm -hmm. then it's going to set them up to potentially not be in a very good spot, uh, financially <laughs> and, 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 and real, in reality, like that affects life too. Like your happiness of life, your quality of life. Yeah. And I would agree. Like I said, I think drawing from my experience, I really think that manufacturers are going to have to kind of put a foot forward and try and reach people at a younger age. Uh, again, in my experience, let's say when I was in high school, there was no, there were some like career conversations, but they were mostly within, you know, the educational system. Like, oh, you're going to go and get this degree or that degree. And they would explain what in general, what the professions were, but I've never had like a plant tour at the at the mm -hmm. age of you know like 14 to like 16 for example because for me and that was you know i wanted to mention this like the the beginning of my career was 
when I stepped foot at the Procter and Gamble like facility for my interview. And again, they're very secretive about the environment for whatever reason. You know, they don't want to expose their <laughs> secrets, so they don't make they don't put out any videos. So I couldn't find anything. But if you right. request a tour and you have an interview, you can freely go in there and see everything that they're doing, right? And once I stepped foot on that production floor, I'm like, I right, like this is where I want to go. You know what yeah. I mean? Because I saw I saw the robots, I saw the drives, I saw you know, the smart people that were putting all those systems together, mm-hmm. how the process, it was like, again, like it, it's a simple comparison, but it's the how it's made, like seen in real life. And, you know, like yeah. even how it's made, like they zoom in on the little things and they don't always paint the whole picture like an entire plant. So I think it's super mm-hmm. impressive. And I think that manufacturers need to do a lot more of that with uh, with the younger generation to sort of attract them. And to your mm-hmm. point, like even on the salaries, like really be open with them. And I think those numbers are out there, right? Like you can find what the salary is, like at this position, at that position, and what it mm-hmm. takes to progress. Uh, you know, if they choose engineering, like here's where you get in. If you want to just right out of high school, you can become like a line operator. If you want to become a mechanic, a tech, uh, like whatever, it, you, they can paint you that picture. And I, I guess it's still surprising to me that it's still that unclear. You know what I mean? Like it's still yes. not as like easily understood at those ages as it is, yeah. let's say for me today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, if you look at it, it's like even today, like we're doing maybe one, one manufacturing uh, tour or how do you call that? What do you, what do you, uh, field trip. Yeah. There you go. That was sort of, so like yeah. we're doing one one manufacturing field trip a year, and uh, it's not enough exposure, right? Like why are we only doing like one manufacturing trip a year? Why is it only one company? You know that to me in my mind, like it should be almost like a monthly thing. Like that thing is so powerful and impactful to people's lives. Like this is where it's more of a structure change, and like we got to think about like the way our education system is. Um, because we really need to go and, and, and be exposed to that on a monthly basis or a bi-weekly basis or, you know what I mean? Like, and not even just manufacturing, but like going into doctor's offices, going into like yep. having more of these things where we're spending, you know, our time in actual real world workforces and understanding like what the real world looks like. Um, just to kind of like quick fire on a couple things. You know, some people get done with mechanical engineering and they say, oh, well, I didn't know I was going to have to work on a, a computer that long. And you're like, well, what do you think you're getting into, buddy? And, and you know, like, um, what's the other one? Oh, going inside of a manufacturing facility and touring them. And like, say, for instance, they have a high amount of automation. Like, that's also another thing for the manufacturer that's a value add to bring people into your company is that, you know, if you, if, if somebody walks into your facility, you do a tour and they see all kinds of robot movement, uh, that will, that can potentially excite them to want to join your company. And in my mind, it's so powerful. Like today, like 10 plus years of experience in the industry going, gone into hundreds of manufacturing facilities. When I walk into a facility and still see a bunch of robots moving around, I see like a BIW line where there's, you know, two, like four robots putting the car together, like, four robots doing all the welding, like all that, that collaborative motion. Um, I'm still just like mind blown and impressed by it after all these years. And if, if I'm still feeling that way about it, then I know somebody that's just seen it for the first time is going to feel that way. Absolutely. Look, Balika, I, I think <laughs> me and you are on the same page on this. I, I think that I've never had a 
a boring plant tour. I think it's always, how to say, like, I'm always fascinated with what can be done, right? Because I think every factory does it in a different way. The setup is different. There's always very cool things to learn. To your point, it also, there's a lot of opportunities inside of manufacturing. I didn't even know were, like existed, right? So, so something as simple, let's say you want to have a career in finance, right? Well, there's a financial controller in every single plant, right? Yeah. There's going to be some kind of like a bookkeeper or like a manager. There's going to be yeah. somebody in quality, right? So if you go into, um, you know, different degrees, like for example, not medical, but like, let's say biology or any like yeah. lab kind of like degree, like, well, there's opportunities of that in manufacturing, right? Like, yeah. and so... I think manufacturing really englobes so many different jobs that are critical. And I think there's just like at that early stage in your life, you don't know what's possible. And so I'll be honest with you, when I was finishing up my electrical engineering degree, I didn't know what I was going to do, right? Like I had zero idea. I didn't know if I was going to program things, if I was going to create circuits. I remember, you know, memorizing uh, motor load equations, thinking that's what I was going to do. And it was completely useless to say the least but anyways i i didn't know uh what the job was going to entail before i stepped foot you know in, in the first job yeah absolutely and take take us back to kind of what your first job was sure so initially you know like to paint you a picture when i graduated in 2013 uh late spring i moved from montreal canada to los angeles uh, california and i pretty much i didn't have a network i didn't have any connections i had my family there uh, so I moved closer to them and I started applying everywhere, right? Like I was just going on the portals at the time. There was, I think LinkedIn was around, but I had zero presence there. So yeah. I started just sending out my resume through the portals, uh, interviewing for various roles. My initial first, first role was at uh, Mitsubishi Electric doing field work for elevators and escalators. And ironically, that was a desk job, right? So it was the, the title was field engineer. <laughs> but I was doing a lot of the paperwork to figure mm. out what the installers needed to put in each uh, systems. And so to, I guess to break that down a little bit, the Mitsubishi US uh, company was getting the elevators from Mitsubishi Japan, and we needed to make sure that the configurations were, were wired correctly, right? So if it's an elevator with, I don't know, LCD displays versus like touch buttons versus like incandescent, mm. whatever, LED, whatever. So I was massaging paperwork to make sure that the installers were getting the right information in the field. And that was the field engineer job. Um, but during that time, and I guess to maybe how I got into manufacturing, I had also interviewed in that summer for Procter & Gamble. And I know this now because I went through the process, what they typically did, at least back then, is they would get a pool of engineers. And then once they had different openings, in various facilities, they would bring you on to like an on-site interview for a second round. And obviously, if you passed the interview and you were happy with the job offer, you were uh, given a place at the facility. So what happened was I had a, the first interview in the summer and they only called me back in February of, uh, of like next year. So it took, it's a quite a long turnaround process, which is also, you know, has, has its own downsides, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But anyways, so they called me back in February. They're like, hey, we have an opening in this facility out of Auburn, Maine. Are you interested? I, to be, again, like quite honest with you, was bored of the, the paperwork. I, I like the people at Mitsubishi, but the paperwork was a little bit not what I expected as an engineer. Yeah. So I flew out to the manufacturing facility, state of the art, 
robotics, like I told you, like servos, mm. things are being made at speeds, you know, unlike anywhere else in the world. Uh, I walked to the facility, all right, like two week notice to Mitsubishi, guys, I'm uh, I'm moving to Maine, right? And so they moved all my belongings to Maine, which weren't that many at the time. I was, you know, fairly fresh out of school um, and started working in manufacturing, right? And that was, I want to say like my first like real like engineering job. People were extremely smart. The projects were very interesting, um, like high cost, high impact. I would also say fairly stressful at the time. So a lot of responsibility, uh, but I've certainly learned a lot, right? Like I learned a lot in the field, as I've mentioned a little bit earlier, I didn't know what a PLC was. I had never seen those types of like servo drives and systems. So it was quite a learning curve at the beginning. Gotcha. And what did you, what did you start off doing? So my official title was PCNIS, so Process Control and Instrumentation Systems, uh, as as an engineer. Uh, at the very beginning, I'll be honest with you, it was just helping out on startups. So they would be bringing in like various case packing machines, and I was just, you know, making sure the checks are done, sort of like managing the electricians and looking at them, like what they're verifying, understanding the systems with uh, senior engineers, right? So the first. Three to six months, honestly, I was just learning. I think there was, like I said, a lot of different systems. So the senior engineer would, for example, program a new way of, of packaging the, the boxes, right? And he would explain to me, like, this is why we're doing this. This is how it's done. Here's where I adjust the speed of the machine for this servo drive. Here's where I'm making the adjustment on, like, a vision system. And so for the first six months, just learning for the most part. And then I had a chance to participate in larger projects. So I want to say the biggest project right after that learning curve was deploying a new line. So my boss at the time, extremely technical, was kind of the lead on the project and he was commissioning all that equipment during the day shift and I was coming in on nights and making sure, you know, again, we're validating the right checks. I was at that time a little bit more proficient in PLC code. I wouldn't say that I programmed anything from scratch at that point, but I would still like validate like, oh, like, how are the tags doing? Can I trend this tag? Like, is this what we expect? You know, if there's any failure, I had to sort of figure out where it went. And after that, so that was like six months again. After that six months, then I led the next installation of a line. And that involved, you know, at that point now communicating with the vendor and they would tell us, hey, we can't find like this version of this piece of hardware anymore. What do you want to do, right? And it's making those little decisions and then bringing yeah. that equipment back to uh, to the U.S., installing it and commissioning. That's a pretty big amount of responsibility that early on. I'll be honest with you, like <laughs> looking back, it was very overwhelming, right? Like, so it was very tough, but also, like I said, it, I had no choice, right? Like I had to learn. Right. I had to stay like late hours to kind of learn the systems on my own. I had to go back to resources. Uh, I went to, you know, like the Rockwell courses, I had good relationships with the vendors, so I would, I would ask them quite frankly a lot of those questions. Uh, so it wasn't, it, it wasn't a, a walk in the park by any stretch of, of the word. It was very stressful, right? Like going to vendors. Like I had to. Yeah. Um, the first one, like I said, it was with my boss. So we went to Italy. We went to Japan to look at the equipment before it was signed off to be shipped to the U.S. Obviously, the first time you do one of those VATs or FATs. It's very stressful, but you learn, right? And you see how yeah. things are not as perfect as you would like them to be yeah. in the real world, right? Like, yeah. I think it's, uh, I guess, like drawing back to our conversation on engineering, 
I think the expectations that I had is that engineers are like perfect, everything goes well, you have the specifications, yeah. they come out, the builder creates a machine based on the specifications, you receive the machine and it's running, right? Yeah. The reality could not be further from that, right? You have to adjust things, you have to figure mm -hmm. out like how can we do things differently? So anyways, mm -hmm. all, all that to say, it was a challenging uh, time, but I learned quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that that learning experience that you got there, like, was probably one of those things that like advanced you along in your knowledge, like many more years than a lot of people would have the exposure to, to get that much experience that quickly. Yeah. And like I said, I'm very thankful for, for that experience. I ended up moving, uh, from PNG after three years. Um, I can certainly share the, the reasons I guess, but at the time, uh, how to say it, I think it wasn't the right decision, right? Like if I was to re if I was mm. to reflect on that, I think I should have had more conversations with uh, my management teams. And that's one of the pieces of advices that I give to younger engineers in their careers. I think that for a number of reasons, you either think like, oh, things are not moving fast enough or things are moving too slow. You start to be either like bored at the job or you, know, you want to seek okay. out like different opportunities. Yeah. And, and you don't have those conversations with your immediate managers. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you just get so fed up with how things are done that you, like I said, end up pulling the plug. But I think I should have had those conversations. And now that I'm a bit more mature, uh, yeah. I kind of look back and think like, hey, like maybe I could have changed some things to make it more in my favor. So um, for what it's worth to younger engineers, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I think it's definitely valuable Like have that have that open discussion because I think a lot of people they'll just leave their position right like hey can I get a raise no okay peace yeah <laughs> like <laughs> whereas like the yeah the conversation should be much deeper okay what what is it going to take for me to get a raise oh I can't get a raise what is it going to take right maybe there's something I can do maybe some skill I can add maybe you know and like just have that open open negotiation um I, I was gonna like close that off by saying like you know it also it's not just the money. I think it's like engineers want to work on certain technologies. They want to like work on certain projects. And again, talking for myself, at least I wasn't good at communicating what I wanted to do in my like career trajectory, but yep. I could have done that better. And I could have, you know, gotten what I wanted having stayed at that employer. Right. But I, I kind of right. like built that in my head and like, Oh, like I'm not going to have that opportunity. Yeah. And so I'm just going to go somewhere else that has it. Right? Gotcha. So what what was your next opportunity? Uh, I moved to Kraft Heinz. So I, you know, like one of the, I guess, other external reasons was that Maine is quite different from a, a large city, right? And having grown up in large cities, I couldn't find the same type of maybe environment that I was not thriving in, but I guess like looking forward to. Decided to move back to Los Angeles. I think the, at least for me, it was a better suited environment at the time. And so I joined Kraft Heinz in a maintenance manager uh, role. So very different from engineering, but still, you know, the way it was sold to me and what I was doing at the plant was still fairly technical, right? So um, obviously different people in maintenance have different skill sets, uh, but they wanted me for like that electrical expertise, which uh, they didn't have at the time. Uh, but it was it was a different role because I was almost immediately put in charge of like 26 mechanics and technicians, mm. and I needed to manage the the pays, manage the schedules, and so that brought a whole other like host of 
I want to say like challenges that I was not exposed oh, yeah. to uh, before I had to deal with the union, which again, that also brings its own challenges. Yeah. So uh, again, I learned things, but I want to say there I learned more on how to work with people rather than like, I didn't grow technically as much as I did on like the human aspects in that gotcha. role. And then after what made you transition after that? That's a good question. So back in 2015, uh, you may may or may not know this. So Kraft and Heinz was merged by uh, by a group out of Brazil and uh, Berkshire Hathaway. So they made the merge in 2015. And so, as you can imagine, one of the main initiatives from like an accounting standpoint, which I now understand in part due to my MBA, was <laughs> you know cost cutting. We're going to close down a few facilities. So as of 2018, they shut down. Uh, that factory. And mm -hmm. I want to tell you that there were signs that they were going that route at the management level even before that, right? So at the time, I was working with a consultant slash integrator that was supporting that facility. And he noticed that I had a lot more knowledge on the technical side than a typical, like I said, like maintenance management requires a lot of, like I said, that human aspect, but yeah, I had yeah. more of the technical skills from png and so he said like hey if uh you know if the plant closes i'd like to open uh, i'd like to offer you an opportunity to go do systems integration work uh all across the us so that's kind of um, the decision i had made at the time i spoke to my you know managers at craft and they said like yeah that sounds like a great opportunity we're not certain how long they're going to keep the plant open and, and again that's a decision you know they make at the accounting level the finance yeah. level so it was certainly outside of our, how to say it, like pay grade, if you want to yeah. say it yeah. that way. And then how long did you end up sticking with that company? Uh, so close to three years. Uh, I still keep uh, in good, I'm in still a very good relationship with that previous boss. He's a great mentor, mentor of mine, extremely smart, especially on like the Alan Bradley side. Uh, like I said, we did integration work across the US. I was flying to Georgia, uh, you know, every Two weeks, essentially, I would do like two weeks. I would have a weekend off back in LA, then fly back again for two weeks. <laughs> An entire plant commissioning project. So there too, I learned quite a bit. The company was very small, right? So I was employee number one at the time. So I had a an opportunity to almost like choose the platforms, like select the parts. And mm. um, I want to say, you know, that's the difference between, let's say, a very highly corporate company mm. and kind of like a small systems integration firm you get to make a lot of those decisions and you get to try again, like different controllers, different platforms, different sensors you can choose, right? Versus a right. highly standardized plant. You're kind of like locked in. There's a lot of paperwork. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of approvals. And so, you know, to the earlier conversation of, of PNG at some point, you're like, oh man, like I don't want to do all this paperwork. I just want to do yeah. the technical things. And so that's yeah. what that job really allowed me to do. Yeah. I mean, me personally, like I've, you spent my entire career in system integration and also with a, with a smaller company. So it was nice being able to uh, like have that freedom. And, and also too, like really when I started with the company, they, they had really just started getting into robotic cells. I mean, they were doing like robotic service and on-site programming and things like that for like 10 years before I had joined. But whenever, I, after I had joined the company, they, they were just in the phases of doing like their first couple capital projects with robotics. Uh, and so the team was made, you know, primarily made of, of strong engineers. Uh, even the owner had a ton of uh, years of experience and vision and, 
in Fanuc Robot Programming and really what the, the business was based off of. But they also didn't have like, you know, much of a structure as far as like, you know, we use Allen Bradley PLCs, we're going to use like A&T modules and like this is how we're going to design every cabinet. It was like every cabinet was different and like, so I, that was one thing where like I really had the ability to like step in as a leader and, and kind of help mold like the direction of like where the company was going engineering wise and say like, guys, like we need to standardize the way we build cabinets. Like, why are we doing this different every single time? Like, and some of it started off originally as like frustrations of being the guy that had to wire things or something like that, or, or program things like guys, I have to redo this from scratch every single time. Cause all the IOs mapped out differently. Like, you know, why is this like this? And, uh, and also too, like being a little bit younger and seeing like technological advancements and stuff like that. Like I was excited about using the newer technologies. Like back then, this is when like Ethernet IP and, and like more connected devices was becoming a thing. Like I think during this period of time is like whenever like Fanuc released like SIP safety for the robots, uh, and being able to communicate safety signals from, from PLC to robot over Ethernet. And I'm like, guys, this is powerful. Like we're doing stuff with DCS zones and we're like having to hardwire, hardwire all the connections. And if we want to change something, then we have to like rewire something or add more wires or, or whatever it may be. Right. And so like having this like programming ability to just like change some program code and, and be good, like was, was, was an exciting and, and, you know, fun thing Yeah, of to course do. you get a lot more leeway, right? Like when you're sort of like a, a smaller systems integrator versus like I said, a corporate environment, I would say. You know, and this is uh, maybe like people disagree with me on this, but I like the, how to say, like as an engineer, I like to create things. And mm -hmm. so when we've already solved the problem one way, in some aspects, I like to say like, hey, can we solve it in a different way using like a different piece of technology, right? And so yeah. I understand there's a need to standardize. I understand that like, obviously it makes things simpler, but I think there's also opportunity to be had in trying things and maybe they do work out in your favor, right? So just because yeah. we've done this project 10 times mm -hmm. on like Alan Bradley, hey, maybe maybe we try this on, let's say like a Siemens, Opto, Phoenix, whatever on this 11th time. And I understand that there's a potential to fail, but maybe there's also potential to learn how this platform is like better yeah. or more suited for this application. So I think, you know, a, a lot of times on LinkedIn, you'll see the... The saying like use the right tool for the job and i you know i've thought about this a lot i think like there's many tools that can be used for the same job in the space yeah. right i think the analogy of like hammer for a nail is not necessarily correct because you can use many platforms to accomplish the same tasks and i think right. you should experiment with a couple to see what works better what works worse you know they all have their own how to say like peculiar maybe differences um, but anyways, I, I guess like to come back to the original like conversation, I think in a small integrator, you can do those things, right? Like as an engineer, and that's the exciting part, right? Like you're almost like an artist at the same time as you are like a technical person, yeah. which you don't realize that's what you're going to be doing. But anyways, to me, that's what kept the things uh, really cool versus like I told you the story of yeah. like the first uh, experiences where everything was very standard. You couldn't do anything outside of those boundaries and you had to use the same platforms just because, you know, a vice president has signed a contract yeah. for the next like 10 years. But yeah, absolutely. I like, I like the fact that you're saying like, just don't standardize and just leave the standard and make it the same standard for like the next 10, 20 years. Like let's, yeah. let's change things. Cause like one of the, one of our like initiatives that we always are striving for in our company is 
like remote accessibility. Like how can we service this thing remotely, do program changes? Like, so like we're, you know, when we implement uh, systems, like we install all the software packages that give us the ability to remote program at, at the highest level that we can. Uh, we're, we're exploring new products that like, you know, if you, if, if you can walk, log into the, the web browser interface and you can see the IO statuses and stuff like that in the, in this one unit, but in this other one, you can actually write the program. We want the one where we can write the program. And then, so from there, we're like analyzing like cost justification, like, okay, well, this one costs one a thousand dollars more than this other one, like kind of like weighing out those things and like, uh, pushing the envelope on, on, on how, how like we can support, uh, things remotely yeah absolutely and, and again like to your point that was one of my like frustrations with the with the larger companies i couldn't try uh like i'll give you one example we were heavily standardized on cognex for vision systems and i'm like hey like uh, you know I, I found like keyens i found like yeah. banner and i would like to try these systems and i was pretty much like told no by the the management team right because we are yeah. standardized this one platform but i think there's yeah. a lot of opportunities yeah and again like as you said they offer different things why yep. not try them out? Right. But anyways, that's. Yeah. And also too, like it's getting, a, the gap is closing a little bit, but especially like, you know, five years ago, like you had a Kansas and you had a Cognex. One thing that I always said about like Kansas and Cognex, cause I also did quite a bit with vision mm -hmm. is they're both good products, but, and they're basically both the same. However, each one of them ten, ten, tended to have a product line that was like really good at something. Right. Like, you know, like back then, like Kent's, I think they launched like their aluminum track system. Right. And like, that was like one of their new Brown great breaking like products that they released. And so it was like 2d vision, but you were able to get 3d data. Right. And so like those things yeah. were, were opening up new tools and, and abilities to, to be able to do inspections on applications that you weren't able to do. And, and, and same for Cognix. Cognix had its own, you know, versions of, of like software tools that, that give you different capabilities uh, mm -hmm. to, to automate applications that you weren't able to automate. And see, you know, like I didn't get a chance to kind of look at those tools at the time, right? Because I think obviously the vendors are going to tell you, well, like it, it's basically the same when like you should stick to, to us and it's going to be great. But I, as an engineer, I want to experience that for myself, right? Like, let me integrate yeah. a project with this. Let me see for myself. Let me design a tool and kind of see where it's going to either succeed or fail. Like I want to, how to say it for better, for worse, try it out, see what it is and make my own conclusions, right? Like I hate being told like, oh, it's the same thing. So you shouldn't even bother uh, investing the time because I think, again, a lot of engineers get pigeonholed by their employer into mm -hmm. like a platform, whether yeah. like on the robotics too, right? Like you have so many different vendors and obviously I don't know the distinctions between all of them, but they do offer different tools. They do offer different yep. capabilities. And um, I think it's just how to say it, like having the capability to say, well, let's try it out like in the next project. Maybe it's going to fail, right? Like, like I'm not saying that it's for sure going to be a success, but our engineers going to get like a knowledge, like I guess mm -hmm. the understanding of that platform. Maybe it's going to work for other projects, yeah. right? And so yep. anyways, that's my opinion. Obviously, you know, things yeah, in the business world and i understand that two need to be done differently yeah, but yeah i i mean and i also think that like there there has to be a level of let's say r d like let's call it like you know the scenario that you just explained like 
we'll do this as an R&D type thing. Sure, like let's anticipate losing money on this to do this this other way to try out something new that might give us a leverage into the future. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and again, there's so many technologies coming out right now. I think the smartest manufacturers will spend that like mm -hmm. R&D money. And obviously, again, I don't think me and you are saying just kind of throw money out the door yeah. expecting nothing. I think the conversation is like, well, we have a predictable project. Let's try a new tool that we know is similar, close enough so that we yep. gain the understanding so that we can see, well, maybe it can mm -hmm. be applied in other applications in our facility, right? So it's a, yep. it's a calculated risk, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's an R&D project. It's a learning opportunity, but it's a calculated risk. And so even, you know, if even if the failure happens, we already know we can always buy the previous platform and have it even on standby. Yeah. Uh, if the engineer says, well, look, look, we just can't figure it out or it's not going to work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one other thing that I see industry wise that like is slightly scary for like, especially for the company itself, I don't know how like much it's going to actually impact the industry. I think it's more that competition will essentially put companies out of business. Uh, so like as we navigate more into an automated world and, and as younger people are coming into the space, People are going to be thinking about how can we do this process in an automated way from the get go, right? And so, like, what I'm seeing is is that a lot of manufacturers, let's go back 20 years, whenever somebody says, you know, this kind of ties into what we was talking about, like 20 years ago, somebody said, let's try a robot, and they said, oh no, not a robot, like, you know what I mean, like, and, and maybe it was like some small technological shift or like, Hey, let's put a conveyor here, a conveyor. Why would we do that? Like, you know, um, but like as the technologies, uh, you know, have grown or, or like, let's put some type of line tracking on this or a servo motor on this instead of just an inductive motor, like not creating that shift and, and, and like making those like small investments in like R and D or just, you know, the progression, like technologies, what I'm seeing is like, a lot of companies that just don't have like any automation at all and, and and looking at their process like they either their their company has gotten to a point where like they're really not profitable enough to really invest in automation they're kind of stuck in a hard spot right like they, they can't really invest in automation because now they're so far behind that like they're not as competitive they're uh you know their production rates are not as high they have like like older equipment that you know is, is 20 plus years old that may make it extremely difficult to automate. Whereas like maybe there's configurations of that, that equipment now that, that is more automatable. I'm trying to think of something off the, off the top of my head, but there's a lot of processes that whenever, whenever you're going with like your initial procurement of, of a piece of machine, like a stamping machine or an injection molding machine, CNC machines, any type of machines like that, right? Like if the initial procurement that you buy doesn't have like things built into it, that make it easier to be able to automate and communicate with, then now you're, you're very, very limited, right? Like if you look at like CNC machines 20 years ago, didn't have Ethernet IP or it was a very limited amount of, of CNCs that had Ethernet IP. And, and so now you're, you know, having to use some protocol that maybe you can't even really get the cable and you have to hand build the cable if you can even do that, right. Mm -hmm. To, to be able to interface with that piece of equipment. And, uh, that's one of the challenges that I'm seeing like in, with, with some manufacturers, like they're so old now that like, it's like, what do you do? Like, it's, it's very, you're kind of, they're kind of stuck in a hard spot. And like, you know, some of these companies, like they're within like probably a year or two of like, if they don't make an investment now that like over the next five, 10 years, definitely 20 years, like they'll be out of business because 
somebody else's procuring equipment that's ready to be automated and, and they're buying that piece of equipment knowing that they're already going to put a robot on it, right? There's people buying CNC machines that already have robotic arms on them or have plans to, to put a robotic arm on them to tend that, that machine. You know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I think it also creates an opportunity for maybe like a, the younger generation to come in uh, acquire some of these manufacturing facilities and then, you know, bring in the automation that would provide mm -hmm. the ROI, right? Like I, yep. I, I always like to see on the, on the positive side. So I think if someone's yeah. unwilling or how to say it, doesn't see the benefit in automating their facility, mm -hmm. more power to them, right? Like they can right. sell that off to someone who's going to buy it for pennies on the dollar. Uh, retrofit what they need to retrofit, add the automation, make sure that everything is up to 2023, at least like standards. Yeah. And uh, I think that there's a ton of opportunity. I think it's just yeah. you need the right maybe like skill set or and also the right partner, right? Like mm -hmm. I think that it's difficult also to find partners that would come in, do a good assessment of the facility, understand to some extent your business slash process and propose solutions that make sense, right? I don't think, uh, I don't think that there's how to say it, like too many of those either. So I think it takes yeah. time to build that relationship. It takes time for that vendor to get up to speed to understand, yeah. you know, what you, you what you can buy from like a, a monetary standpoint. What you're trying to make better from like a bottleneck, maybe like process standpoint. And then ultimately kind of figure out the solutions for you along the way. So yeah. anyways, I, I personally see it as a positive because it's going <laughs> to open up some opportunities for me. But look, yeah. I, yeah, I agree with you. One of, one, one of the re small reasons why why I started an automation company is, is kind of for that reason. At some point in time after we grow out our presence in automation enough that we're going to start the acquisition of like manufacturing facilities. And that'll be like our core focus is acquiring companies that have a ton of like manual labor and uh you know there's just tons of opportunity out there right of, of of companies that can be converted absolutely and and i think you know people also maybe sometimes get lost in these you know to take it on the opposite side of the spectrum when you go to like a conference or you talk to certain uh i want to say like hardware or software oems i think the picture is that we're trying to deploy ai we're trying to deploy machine learning I think there's a lot of still like low hanging fruit and opportunities at kind of like the lower ends of automation, right? Like, so process again, right now, people are having trouble finding people to palletize cases, right? And I think like, that's so easy to calculate what the yeah, value yeah. is there. And I think they're just stuck thinking, Hey, how can we add artificial intelligence? How can we add these like data analysis tools and data is important, right? Like I talk about data all the time. Mm -hmm. But I think it also doesn't make sense to go from we're a completely manual operation to we are now a complete lights off, fully out. <laughs> there's just like robots yeah. driving around like facility, you yeah. know, there's steps. And I think there's still a lot of opportunities at the non like very high tech, so to speak, sure. uh, ends of automation. Yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of there's So like we don't necessarily do a ton of consulting, but like there's a high a high level of manufacturing facilities that could utilize more consulting services to uh, kind of drive that plan, like help navigate and, and, and really take the time to research and define what their automation process looks like and really like be their, you know, automation advisor because, you know, 
there's so many things to automate, right? But like all, you know, obviously it goes back to the business side of things of like, does this, does this present an ROI? How fast is the ROI? What's the risk involved with this application? Like, it doesn't matter if you automate a process that has six people, if you're, if your success rate is like 50% on whether it's going to work or not, um, you're much better off like automating where there's one person and you have a hundred percent success rate. Um, so like, there's so many small things that like, I think like through consulting, uh, that companies can see like a huge, huge benefit and especially like just planning and mapping out like their automatic other automation roadmap to, so that they could have like a, a two to five year plan of, of what that looks like and then start working on some type of like a budgeting and execution of, of that plan. Yeah. And, and, and they're challenging problems, right? Like, let's be honest here. It takes a lot of like effort. It takes industry knowledge. It takes a lot of kind of sitting through conversations with that manufacturing plan to truly understand, you know, where the problems and where do the opportunities lie. And it's, it's not an easy task. So to my like previous point, I think it's difficult to find people capable of doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, but once you get the right partner, once you get the right strategy, uh, I certainly think there's a lot of opportunities, but it requires a certain, uh, I want to say like expertise uh, in that area. Vlad, I think I've kept you long enough. Do you have any last valuable points that you want to add to the community? Well, look, Malik, I really appreciate the conversation. I really enjoy conversations around manufacturing automation. I really hope that, uh, again, we talked about manufacturers sort of creating a better environment, sort of communicating better to the younger generation. I think uh, over the long run, we can solve the problem of lack of labor, uh, but I really hope that it comes from all angles. So I, you know, I just want to thank you for having me uh, on the conversation and I hope that our community keeps the same uh, flow of information going. Absolutely. Vlad, thank you for being here today. And where, where can people find you at? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn primarily. So I'm very responsive. If you want to ask me any questions, you know, we've talked a lot, a lot about content. We've talked about manufacturing automation. If you want to reach out more than happy to have a conversation, uh, my main, I guess, place of activity, solusplc.com. We have a lot of mm -hmm. trainings on various platforms, always looking for instructors and, uh, yeah, anyone interested in content for automation, always happy to uh, sure. to talk to them. Yeah, give us a quick rundown of what what type of content do you have on on Solus PLC? Yeah, so I, you know, as I've kind of explained, I have a very deep um, knowledge of Allen Bradley systems primarily and so that's what we focused on at the very beginning. At this point, we also cover Siemens PLC Next and we cover that both in technical written tutorials because I think uh, you know, like video is great and we have video courses, we have video courses have video tutorials on YouTube. I still think that uh, written content is good for some of the technical materials. So we have written, we have video uh, on all those platforms. As I mentioned, we're looking to bring in robotics. So now we have a, an introduction to FANUC. Uh, you can certainly be the, the judge of that. It's not in my domain, uh, but we are looking to cover a little bit more of advanced topics in that area as well. Awesome. Yeah, definitely cool. anybody who's watching, go check out uh, his website. I think it's super valuable. Like it, it's, we didn't touch on it too much, but it's one of those things like you can take his courses and really get up to speed on, on, you know, your knowledge and experience with PLCs and, and, and really have a leg up on, on the next uh, engineer that you're competing with. We're always trying to improve, right? We're always trying to get feedback. We're trying to understand where the industry is going. 
Uh, I think that nobody's perfect, and certainly we are trying to, you know, take the right steps to build out a better curriculum than uh, others. But we're, we're slowly on the pathway there, right? There's a lot of people in the industry that are doing similar things, and they certainly have their place. Everyone has their take, and uh, if they, as I said, enjoy what we've put together, more than happy yeah. to have a conversation. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but appreciate everything, Malachi. Thank you, Vlad. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Malachi. Thank you. See ya. Take care. Bye.